I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking to Lisa Lehman, Director of the Center for Bioethics at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston, and an Assistant Professor of Medicine at Harvard Medical School. Dr. Lehman has co-authored a perspective article on the role of physicians in assisted dying. Dr. Lehman, you note in your article that we're moving toward greater social and legal acceptance of assisted dying for terminally ill patients, both in Europe and in the United States. By way of background, in this country, Oregon led the way with its Death with Dignity Act, under which terminally ill, mentally competent patients who are certified by two independent physicians to have six months or less to live can receive a lethal dose of medication with the intention of ending their life. The data from Oregon show that the option of assisted dying is not being abused, and that contrary to fears, palliative care has actually improved since the law was passed. So first, why do you think the law has had this effect on palliative care? So, Steve, I I think that's a really important question. And as we think about uh, assisted dying legislation, both throughout the United States, um, it's important that we recognize that this really needs to be done within the context of excellent palliative care. And I think Oregon is is really a model for that, where when the law was proposed, physicians, I think, realized that having excellent palliative care was essential and that the medical profession didn't want patients to choose assisted dying because they did not have access to pain management or to psychosocial support. Um, So ideally, assisted dying should really be an option of last resort. And only after we've exhausted um, all of our other efforts to improve patient symptoms and to respond to their their psychosocial needs, um, that that is something that uh, patients can have access to. So we're really fortunate today to have um, the field of palliative care has has really blossomed and that we have excellent aggressive pain management strategies that are available to patients, um, in addition to counseling and hospice services for terminally ill uh, patients. So I think physicians in Oregon realized that it was critical that that these opportunities be made available to patients um, and that they're not choosing assisted dying because they didn't have good access to pain control or to palliative care. Assisted dying is now legal in Washington state and in Montana as well, although efforts to legalize it have failed in other parts of the country. Is there something unusual about the Northwest that's made this possible? So, so that's an interesting question. Um, I think it's actually uh, primarily a question maybe for sociologists to answer. I can't really comment on whether there's something unique about uh, the Northwest, and I, I suspect that what's going on in Oregon and the conversations and acceptance of assisted dying uh, right next door to these uh, states may be influencing how people in Washington State and Montana are thinking about this issue. But it's important to note that legislation efforts have been put forward in states around the country. So it's actually not just the Northwest the momentum is building. Um, there are actually four states that have had bills on the table in the last legislative season and that had had hearings and testimonies that never came to a vote. So in New York and Hawaii, for example, there were actually bills that were dropped. Um, but in Vermont and Pennsylvania, there are bills that have been pushed ahead for consideration in the next legislative session. Um, uh, so Washington State and Montana, it's also important to note, actually achieved legalization of assisted dying by different means. Montana actually um, it was approved by a court ruling relating to personal autonomy. And in Washington state, there was legislative action and subsequently a vote that uh, approved it. And you know, I don't think we can really know exactly what it was in these two states that led to that. But I suspect that the proximity to Oregon, as well as the support that seems to be growing around the country for assisted dying may have influenced uh, what's going on in those states. 
We may also be moving the geography here in Massachusetts, where there's a referendum in the works for this November that's modeled after Oregon's Death with Dignity Act. What's the status of that initiative, and do you have any early sense of what the Massachusetts voters are thinking? So it's been really interesting to uh, follow what's been happening in Massachusetts, actually. In September of 2011, initially, ballot language was certified by the Attorney General of Massachusetts. And then petitioners were required to collect about 69,000 signatures from voters. um, And that was done in November. It then went into the Massachusetts House of Representatives and was assigned to the Joint Committee on the Judiciary. And from there, there was actually an indirect ballot initiative process, meaning that the legislature had an opportunity to act on the proposed initiative before it goes to the people for a vote. Um, But the legislature actually failed to move the bill forward. And so as a result, what happened was supporters actually gathered more voter signatures. um, And they they had a requirement to gather 11,500 qualified voter signatures between May and July 3rd of this year in order to have have the issue be put placed on the ballot. And actually, just as of last week, as of June 20th, the Death with Dignity campaign collected 21,000 signatures. So that's almost double the amount that they needed to place the question on the November 6th ballot. Um, so there's no question right now that in Massachusetts, that initiative will be on the ballot for voters to decide on. Interestingly, there have been many opponents to that ballot initiative. As you can imagine, in Massachusetts, the Catholic Church is quite strong, and I think they're just beginning their campaign in opposition to this. The Massachusetts Medical Society has also come out in opposition to this, and that is consistent also with the position of the American Medical Association. There have also been some advocates for palliative care and hospice that actually testified against the proposal um, during legislative hearings, as well as Massachusetts Citizens for Life and the Massachusetts Family Institute or ad- and advocates of the disabled and elderly. So there has been quite a bit of opposition to it. Despite that fact, there's actually been some polling data to suggest that the majority of citizens in Massachusetts are in favor of it. So in a poll that was done in uh, by Western New England University, 60% of voters actually supported physician-assisted suicide, and 29% were opposed to it. I think it remains to be seen what will happen, and, and we're just, I think, beginning um, some of the debates that will... Uh, Uh, will help inform what happens in November. You just gave us quite a list of institutional opposition. Is there institutional support for the measure on the other side? There, there is quite a bit of institutional support. So um, the bill was drafted by a, uh, a group of individuals, many of whom are prominent physicians within the state of Massachusetts that have been pushing this forward. And we know that nationally about 50% of physicians support physician-assisted dying. It will also be interesting to see what happens with Catholic voters and whether Catholic voters follow the position of the Catholic Church in opposition, or do we see a a split like we see, for example, with birth control, where you have an official position of the church that is in opposition to birth control, but yet many Catholic uh, individuals who nevertheless are supportive of it. You mentioned as well Pennsylvania and Vermont. Uh, Do you want to continue your odds making and tell us what you think there? 
Sure. So I, I can try. There hasn't been as much data that I'm aware of, other than the, some of the national polls that show that in the United States in general, there's about a 50-50 split on assisted dying. The Northeast seems to have a little bit more individuals who are in favor of it, with about 60% favoring assisted dying, 40% uh, opposed. And in Vermont, there have been some polls, and relatively recently, it looks like about 70% of Vermont voters seem to support assisted dying. You mentioned in your article that current palliative care practices include the possibility of terminal sedation. So how does that option differ from assisted dying? That's a great question uh, and, and a difficult one in some ways. Some people have argued that terminal sedation is actually a slow form of euthanasia. Because what happens in terminal sedation, and actually the preferred term, I think, is palliative sedation. And it's interesting to note how our language helps uh, form our thinking and, and frame our thinking on these on these issues. But in using the term palliation, where the medical community has tried to emphasize the, the focus that the sedation has on relieving suffering. Uh, so what happens with palliative sedation is individuals are given pain medication to the point where they are unconscious. And typically, at the same time, there is a withdrawal of artificial nutrition and hydration. As a result of that, people who are palliatively sedated or terminally sedated are dying, for the most part, of dehydration and starvation. That effort has been accepted by many physicians in the medical community, especially palliative care physicians, in circumstances where it has been extremely difficult to control a patient's suffering and to control their pain. And it is viewed as an option of last resort. But the difference between palliative sedation and assisted dying, I think, is significant in that palliative sedation has been accepted in part and understood ethically within the framework of the double effect, where the intention of the physician administering the sedating medication is to relieve the patient's suffering. And a side effect of relieving that patient's suffering is the patient's death. But death is not what is intended when we're palliatively sedating a patient. We know and we can foresee that it's a byproduct of our actions of providing that medication and of not providing the patient with nutrition and hydration. But our intention is to relieve suffering. When we're talking about assisted dying, many people would say that the primary intention and goal is death. Death may be a means of relieving suffering also, and that's part of why this is so confusing and can be challenging. But I think that, that many people would say that palliative sedation is a palliative process that is different from assisted dying, where assisted dying involves the active participation in ending a person's life where that is the intention. Your perspective article focuses on the medical community's objections to involvement in the purposeful death of a patient. And to sidestep that, you propose creating a central authority that would do the actual prescribing of the lethal medication. How complex and how politically and legally feasible would that be? 
So that's a good question, too. I, I think that creating an independent dispensation mechanism would certainly add a layer of complexity to assisted dying measures, um, such as the Oregon Death with Dignity Act or the proposition that is under consideration in Massachusetts that is modeled on the Oregon Death with Dignity Act. And that idea has not been included into current proposals on assisted dying. So it does add a level of complexity because it doesn't currently exist within that legal framework that has been propose. But I I think that such a mechanism could easily be organized if people thought about it in advance. And um, it could be organized at the state level or federal level, partially by relying on uh, either physical centers to coordinate the dispensation of the medication, or even through a mail order process in the same way that many people get medications today through a mail order system. In our piece, we really didn't focus on the details of how that would work. We really were trying to highlight this as a possible option for really addressing the concerns of physicians and the fact that there seems to be this lingering impediment to the legalization of assisted dying for patients because of physicians' involvement. And we saw this as an opportunity to remove the physician and redefine the role of the physician in a way that would make assisted dying more of a real option for the medical community. From an ethical standpoint, how different is it for a physician to certify that someone is eligible for assisted dying, knowing that the patient would then go to find the medication elsewhere, versus the physicians actually signing the prescription for that medication? So I think that's a really interesting question, and it actually reminds me of some of the kinds of conversations that we had surrounding withdrawal and withholding of life support uh, when that was a, a contentious issue, in that many people said that we know from an ethical perspective that there is no morally significant difference between withdrawing and withholding life support, but yet we still know that when we did empirical research in this area, that from a emotional perspective or a psychological perspective, physicians still felt that there was a distinction between actually withdrawing life-sustaining treatment and withholding it. And I think that it's analogous to this situation. Certainly, many physicians would object that if they're certifying a patient as having a terminally ill prognosis, and that's an essential step in the patient receiving medication that could then be used to end their life, they would feel some moral culpability, and that's understandable. But I think that from the physician's perspective and from as we think about the nature of the physician-patient relationship, that creating the distance between the physician and the actual prescribing of the medication may make a difference to many physicians. It does something, I think, to help preserve the integrity of the physician-patient relationship by removing the physician from the actual act of prescribing a medicine that they know will lead to the death of a patient. Traditionally, physicians are healers. Part of the the nature of what we do is to help people deal with their illness, to cope with their illness, and to help cure them and relieve suffering. And there are many people who feel that we should have a very clear line between that kind of relationship with patients that promotes healing and promotes well-being and one which is focused on killing or helping people die. Uh, So I think that 
having this distance and creating an independent mechanism that allows the physician to, to do what they already do, which is to communicate what a patient's prognosis is, to communicate that they have a terminal illness that's not curable. Those are all central functions of what a physician already is doing. And to not have the physician do anything extra beyond what they would already be doing um, within the context of that healing physician-patient relationship, that I think that that's what makes the difference here, and that may make a difference to a lot of physicians. And ultimately, it won't make a difference to patients. The outcome for patients will still be the same. The other point that I think is important to note that if we look at the data in Oregon, actually one-third of patients that received a prescription for medication to end their life don't actually use it. So when a physician certifies a patient as having a terminal illness and communicates what their prognosis is, which is part of what that physician would be doing in any event, the hope is that the patient won't use that medication to end their life. And I I think that that may also be comforting to many physicians, that even though they're certifying what a patient's prognosis is and that certifying that a patient has a terminal illness and that that's a critical part of this process, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to result in the death of the patient through taking those medications. Thank you, Dr. Lehman. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me.